0: Hello and welcome to Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm here with Susie Finkbeiner, the author of Stories That Bind Us. Uh, Susie, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now let's start, let's just start with the elevator pitch for the book. Uh, what <sighs> is Stories That Bind Us all about? I know it's really hard to like summarize an entire novel in just like a short period of time.
1: I think I can do it. Um, Stories That Bind Us is about Betty Sweet, who is 40 and finds herself suddenly widowed. And she is trying to figure out life when she is introduced to her five-year-old nephew, who she becomes the primary caretaker of for a short time. And she uses stories to help heal her heart and his heart.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just in love with the title. Um, because oh, because you. storytelling is a major element in the book. Obviously, um, the podcast is called Life Is Story. Uh, so to see the way in <laughs> which you write these fictional stories about someone's life, about the lives of um, not just the you know the main characters but also the side characters, and seeing how they develop throughout the course of the novel, uh, but to see the way in which storytelling is that major element of the book. Um, was was really was really enjoyable and really powerful for me to see that healing. Um, what, what, what storytelling can do to, to heal people. Uh, when at what point during your writing did the title come about?
1: That actually comes about pretty late in the process. Um, the publisher actually comes up with the title and. So I knew that it had something to do with storytelling. I knew that the title needed to have something like that. So, um, I would say it was it was about a month before I turned it in that mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. found out the title. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So and then you're going like, "Oh yeah, that's 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 what it's been all along." Cuz I I feel like I don't know, there are some stories and and you just think, "Okay, this title is so good that the story had to have like flowed out of that. And, <laughs> and then there are other times where you're like, well, what else, you know, what else could we have named this? Um, and mm-hmm. this is definitely, definitely a fitting title uh, because it, this is just, uh, I, I think I said in my, in my review that the power of this book is in that uh, there's nothing spectacular about it and usually when you say that when usually when you say that about a novel that's not a compliment um but for Mm -hmm. me this is a compliment in that you are showing that just the power of an ordinary life is a story worth telling and that really struck me Mm -hmm. um so when you're when you're writing this story did you ever feel like oh this isn't enough people are going to want more Mm -hmm. I, i need to spice it up a bit
1: you know that that can be a temptation um but i knew that the the power of the story would rest on on the everyday this this could be anyone's life mm-hmm. and um and inviting the reader in which for me if i'm inviting someone over to my house i want them to to get a glimpse of what our normal life is but maybe like the dirty stuff like the the piles of laundry kind of hidden But um, that's what I I want. And so having things not be sensationalized is important to me. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it just seemed like it it just really hit that life is story vibe very well. Um, Thank you. And, you know, I I read a lot of suspense, a lot of thriller, and even romance sort of takes fiction and sort of um, pulls it to the extreme. And and this one was just really it was it was it was sort of a refreshing change of pace, uh, for me, uh, particularly at the time that Thank I you. read it was it was a change of pace for me, um, and yet it's, this isn't necessarily just an easy read, uh, because you mm-hmm. do you do dive into uh, a couple of different uh, very complex and messy issues. And I, I think especially right now, um, with with the state that our world is in, it's important that we talk about sort of the racial component uh, of the, of the mm-hmm. novel. So the story is set, I think, in the 1960s uh, in Michigan, mm-hmm. and um, Hugo is, is biracial. And, and I feel like that component alone could probably have driven the entire novel. Um, what... Was that element in it from the beginning, or did that just sort of develop naturally as you wrote?
1: Uh, as soon as I pictured Hugo in my in my mind, he was biracial. Um, and I didn't know why, but I went with it, you know, because I think that, that sometimes when we have an instinct in storytelling, we need to follow that instinct and see where it takes us. And um, I, I think that at that time, it was extremely extremely difficult for um, for someone who is biracial or a person of color. I think that that you know and it, it has always been so so difficult and so many obstacles set in front of people mm-hmm. and and I really wanted to highlight not only you know I can never imagine what it was like, but I can imagine what what Betty would be processing mm-hmm. in finally getting to know someone who who has a different skin tone and loving him so desperately and wanting such good things for him. And that that will open our eyes mm-hmm. to what's going on in the world. I think that when, like Betty was before, when we're, we're kind of in a, a vacuum of people who are just like us, we we don't default to empathy mm-hmm. but when we when we can love someone who is oppressed when we love someone who is experiencing things that we will never experience that is eye opening to us mm-hmm. and and that's i think that the country in the 60s was awakening to that a little bit and we're not all the way woken up yet i don't think Right. Um, but there is hope because I see, you know, even in the past week, I've seen friends who are thinking, wait a second, and, and they're really diving in and, and trying to learn and they're listening to to voices that they've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And that gives me so much hope.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what sort of research did you do for this aspect of the novel?
1: You know, it was, it was actually quite organic because in the 60s, there was a lot of um, protest for the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So learning about that, reading some of Dr. King's work was so important. Um, looking into the assassination of Medgar Evers, and that coincided in the the same you know almost 24 hour news cycle as a buddhist monk who set himself on fire in mm-hmm. in vietnam to to speak out against the atrocities of how buddhists were treated in that country and and then there was the the church bombing in birmingham there was the assassination of kennedy you know there were so many things that that happened around the Civil Rights Movement in 1963. And, and researching it, it was heartbreaking, but it was also heartening because there were so many people willing to give up so much in order to, to you know, speak, speak for equality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there was a lot of reading, a lot of documentaries I watched, a lot of talking to baby boomers who even were little kids then, but right. are willing to talk about what it was like to see this or that on the news. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's one thing to write history from how I see it, but it's so important to remember how it was when it actually happened.
0: Right.
1: Because, you know, I could sit here and, and write my judgment into the time, but I need to also know what it was like for them.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting things is that I don't know that I had read something that dealt with race relations in the '60s that was really from the North. Um, I think usually we mm. fo- we focus on the South um, for you know for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. and there can be a tendency in the North, I think, to say, "Well, we handled the issue of slavery and, and race relations long before the South did," so that's <laughs> not right. you know that's not our problem. And you know, I, I grew up in uh in southern indiana so sort of midwest um you know was indiana um that, that you know was part of the union like oh we didn't have slaves uh that's not our problem um and i i kind of I kind of felt that growing up and then i moved to oklahoma um in the south um and and kind of got a different you know viewpoint in history um, honestly, not just in regards to, to, um, our black brothers and sisters, but also the native American population as well. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and so I, I find it interesting, um, you're dealing with race relations in the North. Uh, was there anything specific to that, that, that came up that you that you thought, oh, this is, this is different. Um, or anyone who has, who has read the book, that's been surprised because they thought, oh, well, this you know, 1960s and the North is, you know, not, not the South. It's different. We didn't have that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, I've always lived in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so I, like you, I thought, well, we're fine. We're in the North. We won the civil war. <laughs> um, but that's what, that's kind of what we were taught. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so having to relearn a lot of that was, has been startling. I think that, from one perspective, Northern slavery can be more of those microaggressions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they we do have the Klan here. I, you know, their, their headquarters are maybe seven and a half miles from my house. And, um, it, it happens. And yeah. it's been so quiet until recently, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I, I don't, none of my Michigan friends who have read it have been surprised. I think we all know it's been there. We all know because, mm-hmm. you know, we've had conversations with people who say these things that make us uncomfortable or that we don't like, but we don't know how to, to stand up and confront it. And I think that was an important moment for Betty in the story when um, someone says something racist. Mm -hmm. about Hugo and she says what a terrible thing or a nasty thing to say and she verbalizes her disagreement and she verbalizes standing up for Hugo and it's just a moment and it's it's almost easy to skim over that part but it's so important that we have that moment because that moment leads to other moments and um yeah Michigan is not immune to racism at all um and, and I'm, you know, I hope that when people read this book, they realize that and they realize they can do something.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the issue of mental health, um, just to kind of mm-hmm. jump from one 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 <laughs> <very laughs> difficult subject to another. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I promise you, the book is actually very lighthearted and fun. Um, But I think it's important that we talk about these difficult issues. And I think it's important that you Mm -hmm. write about them. And I I think it's important that you write about them in a way that doesn't overtake the story in a sense that this is not primarily what the book is about. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's such an important element because this is the the way in which most people, um, I'll say most white people, get to address issues of, of racial inequality and mental health is, is usually from secondary positions in their life the way that Betty Sweet does. And uh-huh. when we're only presented with um, movies or books that deal with those issues primarily, uh, then we can kind of become of the opinion that this doesn't affect me directly, so I don't need to deal with it. mm uh. And instead, yep. what I saw in Betty Sweet is that here she is. She's just this 1960s, you know, woman that just sort of living the good American life. Um, and, you know, if you were in Mayberry, you wouldn't hear or see any of these issues. Uh, they existed, right. but you wouldn't You they wouldn't be something that you would talk about or something that that would be promoted or seen. And so to have these issues just sort of in in the background as part of the story and it forces her to deal with them. Um, not even in a, in a primary way, but in a secondary way, I, I think is important to white people who read this book, uh, and people who ha- don't struggle with their mental health, who read this book to say, okay, this is Betty Sweet's position in this book is my position in this book toward, um, People struggling with their mental health and people of color, and can really help inform um, us and teach us how to help respond to that. So, on the issue of, of mental health, um, Betty's sister Clara, we soon we soon find that when when Clara comes back into uh, Betty's life uh, with Hugo. Uh, that she is dealing with with um mental illness um Mm -hmm. that was something that was not necessarily well dealt with in the 1960s uh so what what can you what can you tell us about about that and um, what you learned in your research uh for the for the book
1: you know i've been i've been researching mental health and mental illness for many years um when I was in high school, a close family member had a mental health crisis and it was scary and it was disorienting. Um, and it was eye opening. Uh, it, it showed me that people who, who have a mental illness aren't crazy. Like that's, that's the wrong word. And, um, mm-hmm. they, you don't need to be afraid of them. They deserve your love and respect and, um, and and it's going to take some work to help them but it's worth it it is always worth it and i think that that was that was the early 90s i just aged myself totally but um <laughs> but in the 60s there was no talk you know people did not talk about it um they people were institutionalized often um in those in those situations, and people would say they just went away or, you know, they're sickly or whatever because there was such a stigma. And that stigma remains in a lot of ways, even today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I wanted to have, have Betty experience that because I know so many people who, like you said, it's it's not that who are dealing with the illness in themselves it's it's them trying to advocate for someone they love or um you know trying to figure out what's going on with someone close to them and learning about mental health in the 60s it, there was a there was a big movement um in the mental health community and they were learning so many things, you know, getting away from a lot of the Freudian type thought mm-hmm. and moving toward this is, this is not just, you know, how they were treated in childhood. This is chemistry. This is something that we can treat, something that we can monitor and take care of. Um, and so it's interesting to see the evolution of things in that time and to learn that. You know we we watch a movie about about a mental institution, and they show the electric shock treatment as this barbaric torture. And it's not like that at all. And it actually saves people's lives. And that I think that was what I learned that really surprised me was how effective that treatment is and how people are alive today that may not have been because of that treatment Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the you your portrayal of the mental health facility um, was was spot-on I don't know if you visited one of those facilities to sort of get an idea of what it was like Uh, but my my grandparents lived adjacent to a state-run uh, mental health
1: institution.
0: Mm. So every every time um, going out to their farm, by the time that I had been around, then it had been closed down um, <clears throat> for the most part. And then was eventually after 9-11 was turned into a military base. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, a very interesting history that's for a different, different podcast. Um, <laughs> but... To, to get to their house then you would drive through the property of the of the former uh, mental institution and you know I can remember just being you know sort of in, in, in all of it you know just how how sprawling everything is and how big everything is um, and I, I really felt that your description of it in the in the book um, I, I could envision um, in many ways Um from oh that property that's adjacent to my grandparents house um mm. so it i think it kind of brought to life for me um what that may have been like 20 30 years before i had been mm-hmm. you know i ever went through there and and my dad talks about um when he was a kid um when when the the institution was still was still running and and he uh, worked worked for them to mow, mow the grass as a teenager and uh, interactions with the the people oh. li- who live there. Um, so it was it was a it made me it, your story really brought to life of like oh that's that's what my grandparents lived next to for almost all of their lives. Um, mm. it was very it's very interesting and interesting to see the way in which um, we've sort of evolved from that as well. Um, yeah. so let, let's let's move on, and we we talked about two very very difficult subjects, um, and I'll, I'll just give you one more, uh, that, that right <laughs> at the beginning of of the novel, and this this is, what we're really seeing here is the way in which Betty's relationship is to other people, um, mm-hmm. and, and how she has to deal with with what's. Primary and going on in their lives, so it's race relations uh, for her nephew Hugo. It's mental health for her sister Clara, um, but there is also um, and and I, I think I'll have you decide how much you want to say on this because it might be a spoiler, mm-hmm. even though it happens early in the book. But the relationship with her husband, um, yeah. So I you, I'll leave it to you as to how much you want to say about that particular aspect. Um, but then the, the the very first part of the novel and dealing with her relationship with her husband, I just I just found that and so wholesome. Um, just their story and then flashing back to when uh, they were younger and just first meeting and the way in which the whole family and the bakery because you know there's, there's also the issue of, mm-hmm. of, of the bakery and that element and that 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 to me really really did have a just wholesome mayberry-esque small town <laughs> feel to it um you know how, when you when you started to write this book you know did you have all of those elements um of the relationship planned out
1: No, I didn't. Um, that, the, you know, the flashbacks of, of their their meeting and falling in love and their married, married life, that all just, it was, and this is going to sound weird to people maybe who don't write fiction, <laughs> but it's what Betty wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and so I let her have that. And I do that with my characters. I let them kind of take over. And if it, if it works with the story, it stays in because there's there's a purpose for it, and I I don't write romance, but writing their love story was probably as close as I will ever get, and it was it was such a joy to write. Um, I think that that writing Norm's death because that does happen in I don't know the second chapter, um, and it's not a spoiler I don't think. Um, writing that was very difficult because you know i think that for any of us who are married one of the the fears is losing a spouse early mm-hmm. and and so that really made me confront that and and really see how it is for some of my friends who have lost a spouse early on and um and it it, it happens and i think that sometimes we we don't want to talk about that. We don't know how to to deal with that, and and sometimes we just want people to move on from their sorrow and from their grief. But we, it is important, um, that that we grieve and that we allow that space for that, and that's that's what I wanted to allow Betty.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and just to and part of of grief is remembering the person and just remembering everything that bound you to that person, which is the memories, the shared stories that you have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that returns to the title and that returns to the storytelling element of the book. Um, and the, the, the relational nature, because that, that relationship is just the shared stories. Um, I and mean, that's, that's what a relationship is in many cases. It's the shared mm-hmm. stories between between the two. Um, well, I'm a couple more questions and and then I'll let you go. And, you know, I actually, I had sort of prepared a more softball interview for you. And then I don't know, we got to talking about all these deep issues and we just launched into that instead. And so I appreciate,
1: (laughs) I I appreciate you being willing to talk about it. Um, I do better with the the hardball questions than with the softball questions, actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So this is, this, this is good because I, mean, I just think it's it's just such an important thing to talk about, and it's an important thing I think for your novel in particular, in that this is just life; it's not sensationalized. Um, so that when we re- when we read it, uh, we just sort of go like, "the This is a part of life. These are the stories uh, that we encounter in life, and they're and they're real. They're they're not sensational. <laughs> it, we don't look at them and say, "Well, this could only happen to another person." Um, Or this is unrealistic. This couldn't ever happen to me. Um, This Mm -hmm. is just life experienced. And I think you're going to find that a lot of people are going to identify with this story, or maybe because of the timeline, they're going to find that their parents uh, and their memories of their parents uh, help them identify with this story or grandparents uh, in some instances, mm-hmm. um, and may you know tie them, tie them back to that um, particular particular time. Uh, but let's let's move on to say, I know uh, you're always writing, you told me before we started this interview that um, you' you know you're on to the next thing. Um, <clears throat> what what is next for you?
1: Right now, I am getting close, like I'm inching to the finish line into the deadline of a book that is set in three different time periods. So 1975, which is the very end of the Vietnam War, 1988 and 2013, and it revolves around the adoption of family in Michigan, always Michigan, mm-hmm. adopts um, a, a daughter from Vietnam mm. and and so it's it's the story of the adoption. It's the story of her teens as she's trying to figure out her identity in this world, and then later um, figuring out what it means to to be from Vietnam and um, and from America now. Oh wow! Without telling you too much. <laughs>
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I, I I can already tell you that um, you you get it ready and send it over to me because that's that stuff. Um, that that sounds (laughs) incredible. I I can't imagine because that's, that's such a hard uh, man. You you just always find a way of normalizing the difficult issues because adoption and transracial adoption and adoption in relation to identity issues is so, um, such a difficult thing. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh. Um, all right. Well, thank Susie, you. thank you so much for, again, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, and again, the book is Stories That Bind Us. Uh, it's published by Revel. I think you can find it on uh, Baker. What's Baker's website. Um, you can find it at bakerpublishinggroup.com or on Amazon. Or, you know what? Find your local bookstore, and if they don't have it, tell them to get it in. I'm sure in times like these... <laughs> Uh, they're more than willing to to help you out and and while yeah. you're at it uh, go ahead and, and look up Susie's backlist too I actually have right here on my desk uh, her book all manner of things and I'm getting ready uh. to, to dive into that one uh, here hopefully within the next few days um, and I've only read sort of the first chapter but she's already got me got me hooked on that as well so Susie thank you so much for your time